listened to every single podcast on oneofus.net. What do I do now? Well, first of all, how is that even possible? But secondly, I think I have a solution for you, Chris. There can be no solution, there, Brian. There is a solution, and that solution is our newest sponsor, Audible.com. Guys, if you haven't tried Audible.com, now is the perfect time to do that. We're talking about content that includes over 150,000 audio programs. We're talking about books on digital audio dramas, uh, broadcasters, magazine and newspaper publishers, all the greatest stuff you can possibly imagine in one place just for you. Okay, that actually does sound pretty good. Doesn't that sound great? And you know what? I'm going to make it sound even greater, Chris, because they are officially, Audible is officially one of our sponsors here at oneofus.net, and as a special gift to you guys, Audible has given away a free audiobook. All you have to do is click on the link at the bottom of this page, or you can go to audibletrial.com slash oneofus. You mean to say that by clicking on audible.com and downloading their free book, they make sure by listening to that audio that we keep making more audio as well? That's right, and the cycle continues. All right, so I have your sheet music here, and as you know, this will be the all-singing episode of Digital Noise, so uh, you're ready, right? Yeah, I've been gargling salt water all day. I'm ready to go. All right, that's terrific. Now, of course, in your first scene, you die. Wait, what? Well, yeah, it's, you know, operatic. It's got to have some elements of tragedy in it. Right, but there's only two of us here, so if I die in the first act, what, what's the rest of the show? I'll fix it in post. Oh, you'll fix it in post? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Bullshit! Now, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait. Uh, here, maybe you should try gargling with this instead. Oh, is that beer? Yeah. Oh, delicious. I told you it was a musical. Welcome to another exciting episode of Digital Noise here on oneofus.net. I am Brian. I'm Chris. We are back together, the two vile beginners of this Blu-ray fray. Wait, vile? The vile beginners of the fray. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite lines from Shakespeare. And since we are covering a Shakespearean adaptation on this show, okay. I figured what better way to start than by borrowing from the bard. Out, damn spot. <laughs> fucking, fucking dog, I swear to God. I was going to say, why would you name a cat spot? That <laughs> yeah, just seems no, ridiculous. Yeah, it was... If this is your, is this your first time listening? It better not be, guys, because this is our DVD and Blu-ray review show. We do this shit every week with a new batch of titles. Some are good, some are bad, some were like, what, why the, why? Why would you, why would you, why would you, why would you? Why would you, why would you, why would you? And we're just left making that noise for hours. And that's what you get to enjoy right here on oneofus.net. You can enjoy that on the site. You can enjoy it on iTunes. You can enjoy it on Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter. We're on Goop now. Goop Ooh. is really great. We're on, we're on Flank. I hear Flank is Flank? taking off. We're also on Sp. Uh, that's a Swedish social media site. Really? No. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know who any of these people. You could, you could have been making up everything after Facebook and Twitter. As well. I was. Oh, okay. Goop is not a thing either. I don't know. Every day I see a new thing, like one of the Facebook ads. It's like, oh, join poop meter. <laughs> Measure your poops electronically and compare with your friends. Have you joined Ranbang? Ranbang. 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 What is that? I don't no, Ranbang. Just keep saying it. Sex with libertarians? I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Don't suffer under the yoke of people who won't have sex with you anymore. 
Hey guys, uh, thanks so much for listening in. If you haven't already become a subscriber, I really want to encourage you to do that because that is how we keep the lights on and we've got a lot of great content in there now for subscribers. We've got more stuff coming down the pike. Uh, I don't know what a pike is. It's is it, a thing that things come down from. Like a, like a, like a pike, like if you drive on like Jefferson Pike. Yeah, is that what that means? Okay. I think so. It's also a kind of fish. It is a kind of fish. Yeah. So coming down the fish is more great stuff for the forum. So definitely uh, jump on and become a subscriber if you haven't done that already. And also, if you haven't already gotten your free ebook from Audible, all you got to do is go to Audible, uh, audibletrial.com slash one of us and uh, pick that up. And that supports us as well as giving you a free audiobook. Well, there you go. Do it. Why haven't you done it already? And if you have... Disregard this message. Disregard this message. This is fun. We haven't we haven't done this in a while. We've been split up with other hosts. And, yeah, you and, and your goddamn Johnny Neal. Me and my go- Johnny Neal. Of course, when I put up the the question post, was like, "You found somebody else, like a jilted lover." <laughs> it's like, no, the Chris you know. <laughs> oh, I forgot the, about that guy. The Chris you know is better than the devil you don't. The I've always Chris heard that to be know. the case. So. With that in mind, we're going to dive into something I actually haven't done for a while and I'm really excited to do again, and that is opening the... The Letterboxd. You've got mail. Yes, Torgo, thank you. It's been a long time, sir. You smell exactly as horrible as I remember. Thank you. All right, this first question comes from Neil Kelly. Neil Kelly would like to know... Uh, he said, I was in the video store lately, yes, they still exist, and saw four different editions of the Jurassic Park trilogy on Blu-ray. Yes, four. When it comes to re-releases and repackagings, what are the tips you would give on choosing the right one? Wow. Um, <laughs> that's, that's actually a good question. Yeah. There's certainly uh, a lot of uh, double-dipping and triple-dipping going on these days. Ultimately, it depends on how much you want to spend versus how good the package is. So many of these things are like, well, for instance, the Pitch Perfect uh, uh, double dip that came out recently. The only difference between that and the previous one was a karaoke track. Does that mean something to you? I don't know. It didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Uh, but you, and you probably could pay less for the earlier version. I mean, it doesn't hurt if you're looking to buy something. If you make sure to check out the, the various different versions that are out there because you might be wasting money. I would highly recommend uh, saving into your phone uh, the pages, either High Def Digest or Blu-ray.com, yeah. uh, and looking up the editions when you're in the store, because not, when you're in the store, you're not always going to see all of the editions on the shelf. Some stores may have one versus another, what have you. And look at, uh, specifically look at HD uh, exclusive content. Yeah. Because there's a lot of standard definition stuff that could have been ported over from DVDs that might be on every single one of those double, triple dips. But what you're really looking for is the HD content exclusive to that release. If they're like, for example, Escape from New York, the, the Scream Factory Blu-ray. It's like, yes, there is already an Escape from New York Blu-ray, but it does not have half of the new features that Scream Factory put out. And you can look on the back and see usually not just everything that's on there, but broken down into this is exclusive. And if it isn't broken down, that's where a website like High Def Digest comes into play. Well, let's not forget as well, a lot of the times even later releases are going back to earlier not as good prints of true, the films true. that does happen you'll see sometimes Criterion will put something out and then three years later some other lesser company's doing it but they don't have the license to Criterion's print yeah. so they've got a much crappier earlier version they're doing that happens a lot you know same thing with audio depending on how much you care about that some people have a badass setup uh, some people don't so make sure you double check that stuff. Both those two sites we listed do a great job of breaking it down by, you know, you know, there'll be a thing. How's the audio? How's the video? Yeah. Uh, so 
a little bit of research is not a bad thing. And I'm gonna and we're gonna do as far as picture quality. This is gonna be the Sesame Street version here, folks. This episode's brought to you by the number four and the letter K. If you see new 4K restoration, that is something you want to pick up because those 4K restorations look gorgeous. Yes, they do. So and that's soon we'll all have 4K TVs too. So. Soon we will look. We will see the world in 4K. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think uh, we see it in like 12K. I, sure. I don't know how many Ks. I haven't been paying attention to the Ks. Um, this next question comes to us from, uh, let's see, Zach McLaren, who asks, You are a warrior of the wasteland. I like this question already. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. And you run into Mad Max Rakatansky. What is your wasteland name, your weapon, and what is your vehicle? What is this, one of those Facebook things that you put in your like you know information, answer a couple questions, it gives you your name? Yes. I- Which disposable war boy are you? Huh. I don't know. You go first. Uh, I would be King Kamea Slayer. Uh, my vehicle would be basically like an old uh, woody, like one of those, like not, not the station wagons, but they kind of look like mini buses that you see in like surf movies in the 50s, except that it would have like blades and shit all over it. Blades that look like surfboards on the front. And um, what was it? My weapon. Oh, I would definitely wield like some kind of like uh, like mace on a chain and just like swing that shit above my head. Yeah, well, you know, I'd be the cat god. The cat be, god, yeah, sure. Of course, and I would have like uh, a car with like big, like whisker-looking things coming off the front. Only they're electrified and shoot out like zaps of electricity at people. Yeah, and then I would have a uh, a launching gun of dogs because I'm not going to put cats into launchers. Damn it! Damn it! I will kill you first, Chris. <laughs> I will kill you first I'll, to save those dogs. Obviously, we're nemeses. I will free my people by <laughs> slaughtering you. Or- <laughs> M- meow way, god of cats. Meow way. <laughs> well, this has been fun. Thank you for your question. Thank, thank God we we uh, had uh, one good one question that we really had to think about, and one question that now I don't feel as smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that in mind, I think we should go ahead and dive into the reviews. That felt good. Yeah, it felt did. good. I it do. I feel good. better now. All okay, right. Let, let's do this. Let's do it. Yeah. What are we starting with? Uh, oh, wait. That's your job. I that's thought. usually my job. Okay. So let's just start with horror because that's what we like horror and talk, horror. About, talk about one. I know you didn't get a chance to see The Drownsman, but I didn't think it was a real movie because that title is it's ridiculous. The dumbest title ever. I am The Drownsman. What do you do? Really? You can't figure that the out? The thing is, I would have actually taken this movie, which on the whole has a pretty high production value, uh, a lot more seriously than on for the stupid ass title. The Drownsman. Man, yeah, I just like what I call something like "He Who Drowns" or something like that. But you know, or or just uh, drowned the suffocator, the suffocator, <laughs> <laughs> Aquaman. Oh wait, oh wait, no, that no, one's taken. That won't work. That's lame too, though. Yeah, uh, but the idea here is basically if you, well, let's face it, this is a, a very eighties influenced film, uh, mainly Nightmare on Elm Street is what this is taking from. And the idea being is that there's this killer who exists in sort of like a very close to parallel dimension to ours who can come into our world through almost any amount of water. Like at one point, like a, like a quarter of a glass of water spilled on a desk and he's able to reach up through it. Uh, and he's trying to bring people to his dimension so then he can watch them drown. He, Kills people through drowning. That's a, kind of his thing. Uh, and in he's mi- an angry fish. He, yeah, something like that, I guess. Uh, he, uh, he's he's actually Mrs. Paul's the big reveal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is we see in the beginning. There's a near death experience from this woman named Madison, uh, 
and she like flashes and sees the you know the other world for a minute. But when she comes out, it's like a little while. It's like goes to a little while later, and she's like, "I'm absolutely terrified of water." I, she didn't even drink it. She literally walks around with an IV thing that she plugs into her arm to keep hydrated. She won't even drink water. Okay. Yeah, because she just has all these nightmares, and she's believing in this thing. And then, of course, she finds out that in fact the drownsman is realish. <laughs> okay. And so her friends try to help her, but of course he starts picking them off one by one and then enter the sequence where they're like, oh, look, let's look through these old newspaper clippings. Oh my God, he was a real guy. Let's find someone who, who uh, had some relationship with the real guy. Oh God, he was a real guy. Everyone's dying. And what you get is a film that would have been a lot scarier if people weren't dying just by drowning, quite frankly, because that's not just... You know, I mean, you drown a couple people. It gets boring. Yeah, you're going to drown a person, maybe even two. But if that's like the sole killing mechanism, after a while, you're like, okay, we got it. You have a very specific killing fetish. And um, maybe like the claws on the fingers were a little more scary. Maybe a little bit. Also, I thought when I saw the cover of this movie, I thought it came out in like 87, 88. And it's trying to be that kind of film. And on some level, I mean, this is not... A, a terrible movie. It's uh, played at Fantasia, uh, and you know, it got mixed to slightly good reviews because it's one of those like you watch it and you go, honestly, this with some fixing could have been a pretty good movie, a uh, pretty fun little horror. It's certainly the guy knows how to get his tension right. The killer himself is supremely creepy looking, and honestly, the the way they play out the concept of all the water stuff is kind of cool. You know, it feels a lot like the characters trying to keep from falling asleep in Nightmare on Elm Street deal, except in here, constantly trying to find ways to avoid being around water at all. Which you know, living in a rainy state as they apparently do, it's not always easy. With the drowned warriors! Ultimately, it comes to a pretty damn silly and ineffective end, and like I said, there's a point you're just like, alright, enough of the drowning already. Oh, yes, I know, it's your thing. (laughs) That's your thing, just let him do his thing. This director, Chad Archibald, it's not his first film. Uh, He worked in music videos initially. He does have a good sense of style, and I think that really he might be somebody, in fact, to actually watch in the future. Fair hard, enough. Hard, hard to say for sure. <laughs> uh, but, well, let me let me jump from this to a horror movie that I saw that I know you didn't get a chance to. That uh, you you fucking dodged a bullet. It is called Beyond Remedy, and I may be beyond my capacity as a critic to tell you how bad this fucking movie is. Really, because it sounded like it might be actually good. Like a bunch of medical students have to take a. Uh, are taking seminars on fear, and then, of course, horrible shit starts to happen. That sounds like a premise for kind of a cool horror. It sounds like it could be, except that you get there and you realize the only reason this movie exists is because somebody on the production went, oh, you know, we have access to that, like, old hospital that they're going to tear down. We should probably make a horror movie there. Should we write it first? No. <laughs> this is a slasher film, by the way, first of all. And German, right? It's it's German, and it collects, like... an international group of uh, of students who all have different fears, some of which are more clearly defined than others. I think one of them is, like, afraid of glass. Another one appears to be afraid of, like, posters from the Lost Boys, because that's all that she keeps seeing in her head until I, the end of the movie. I was going to say, if you, like, have a, like, if you're going to be phobic about anything, choosing something you hardly ever encounter seems to be, like, the best thing to choose. Yeah. Uh, it could, it could be. Not even phobic of watching the movie. It's just a poster just the for poster. some reason. Freaks me out. Yeah. It's, you know, and so they all go to this clinic, and, every, by the way, since they're all international, half the actors appear to be dubbed. Half, the other half are unintelligible. Absolutely unintelligible. I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck you're saying. I feel like you're speaking English, 
<laughs> or at least you think you are, but it's not good. And this is a slasher movie on par with the movie Final Exam in that we have one kill near the beginning, and then we go a whole fucking hour before anyone else dies. Oh, well, that doesn't sound good. And it's a lot of meandering around in this hospital and like, oh, is that really there? Or is this just their fear taking over? None of it is done well. It has some of the crappiest editing I have ever seen outside of like a Wonder Woman episode. There's literally... (laughs) There's literally a scene where she's up on a balcony and she's going to jump onto this dumpster and then into this guy's arms. And they edit it in such a way that her knees never bend. She goes from the balcony to the top of the uh, top of the dumpster in his arms and her legs are straight the whole time. And I'm like... They should it, be broken. It's like it's clear. like Or at least bent because you had to land on something. Okay, so very little effort in here is what you're saying. Hey, it does have Rick Yoon, from, who was the bad guy from the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Rick Yoon <laughs> used to be in all of the biggest movies. He was a henchman in Die Another Day. He was in Fast and the Furious. He was just in, like, Olympus Has Fallen. Like, he's been in a bunch of really big movies. What the fuck he's doing in this movie that he must have made $200 being in is beyond me. Oh, 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 oh. And if you are interested in seeing this movie, do not look at the DVD cover. Because it, it looks like it's a totally different movie? Because there are only two people on the cover, which leads you to believe these are the two most important people. Uh, one of them is the girl who is the final girl. The other one, well, I'm just going to leave you to guess who the other guy is. <laughs> but if you flip it over on the back, that guy is pointing a gun at her on the back of the fucking box. And it's like, spoiler, you give away the fucking killer on the back of your own box. What are you doing? Well, I guess there are films that are so bad that there's a point they go, oh, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, and this is one of, like, the, nothing about this movie makes sense. When the reveal is done, the the motivation for this killer to do what he's doing literally makes zero sense. I'm like, no, that didn't happen because there's no way that would happen. You're, you're an idiot. And it's like, and then he's like, you know, this hospital, there was once a doctor who killed, like, 12 children because he was afraid of them. I'm like, no. No, he didn't, because that's stupid. How, why would he become a pediatrician if he were scared of children in the first place? That's dumb. You're dumb. This movie is dumb. Fair enough. Get out of my fucking TV. I hate well, this movie. It still sounds better than the one I saw, the other one I saw that you did in an Irish exorcism. Oh, Fiti Megara, dodge myself a little bit of a bullet with this one. Man, this is... Ah, uh, these found footage films, I swear to fucking Oh, and it's found Christ. footage! You know, it's like, oh, these people who are originally from this town and this, uh, like, this area, this small county in Ireland have come back to film a thing about, like, the belief in exorcisms and are lucky enough to come across a situation where somebody actually comes up to the local parish priest and is like, ah, my daughter's possessed. So they worm their way into getting to film the thing. And it goes on to deliver nothing that we haven't seen a hundred times before done much better. There's no twist at all. It'd be like... Come on, at least make it where, like, oh, he really wasn't trying to possess her. He was just after her lucky charms or something. Ow. You know? I like, it's it, an Irish exorcism only because it happens to take place in Ireland. There's nothing really, like, distinctively Irish other than that. It's like, what the, who is making these fucking films? <laughs> and for whom? Like, they're, they're just not even trying. And almost nothing actually happens in this film. It's, they're like following this girl around who doesn't I mean they didn't even bother to give her like an evil voice or anything like that when she's possessed it's just oh god what I, I, I'm sorry I just I was so tired watching this film about the entire horror industry this was like 
what happened? This guy's been working in uh, television and film for like almost 20 years. You're like, come on, man. You know you're making crap. There's no way you don't know you're making crap. He doesn't even have like the the benefit, the excuse of, you know, being naive or being new to the industry. Right. Like some right out of fresh out of college kid or something. You're like, no, you put together this as a quick cheapy and boy, is it cheap? Because like I said, you see next to nothing in this movie. There's almost no practical effects or anything. It's a lot of, whoa, what was that? <laughs> what? Huh? I'm sorry. You know, uh, just barely off-camera sounds, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Fuck. It would have been scarier if an Irish exorcism was about a film that tried to fire Liam Neeson. That Ooh. would have been a scarier movie. Ooh. I'm just saying. I, I, I kind of like to see that movie. I would, because everyone on that production would be killed. But the less said about that, the better. So let's move on to the last horror movie we have. To, well, two more horror movies that we have today. One is Drawn in Blood. Oh, these God. are, these are like, uh, a lot of these are from the same releaser, Olive, that usually releases, like, stuff we actually kind of like. You're like old stuff that never was A-list, never was even quite B-list, but was maybe high C-list. Mm-hmm. And some of that stuff you might totally love. Yeah. In fact, we have uh, one of their movies today that I'm like, yeah, I really like this film. Uh, Drawn in Blood is not one of those films. I was going to say, I want to say this to Olive Films. You've been putting out some really great, uh, you know, catalog titles from the studios, really fun stuff. Europe is not your friend. Contemporary Europe is not your friend. Stop going there. This that, felt like a package deal is what this Yeah, Beyond like. Remedy, this one and another one we're going to talk about all came from, I believe all came from Germany. Yeah. Um, and, and Planet Ger- USA. Germany is not your fucking, oh my God, Planet USA Yeah, we'll get too. to Planet USA. Oh, uh, but John and Blood is a attempted giallo, uh, you know, except in Germany, with uh, an American who found out that her brother Michael's committed suicide, so she travels to Berlin, basically to sort out his stuff, uh, and starts seeing little weird things, like there's a uh, camera in the window, and across the street there's a dude who is the artist for like the nastiest, bloodiest comic book you have like ever heard of, most misogynist comic book, who is constantly having sex with women. Yeah. And the camera's pointed right at his window. What's going on with that? She starts to put these facts together, and after a while, the things, the little clues together, and after a while, she realizes, my brother didn't kill himself, something else happened here. She found out he was, he was involved in a ring of blackmail, and there's there's only like four possible suspects in this whole movie. Yeah, it and, doesn't make it hard to. And the movie, it down. like, like <laughs> literally, the neighbor they try and make you think it is right off the bat is like Tote from Raiders of Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, come on, it's obviously not him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like you're so trying to make us distracted by him. And I was like, twenty, thirty minutes into this film, where I was like, okay, through. Doing the math here, the most obvious subject is this person. And sure enough, when That's it comes, it you're like, I'm not surprised at all, even though it still feels completely forced and fake. I mean, this is probably the slickest made of these films that we've seen. Certainly, like, there's a professionalism going on here and performances that aren't bad. But it's just a really been there, done that a thousand times before, much better type of script. It's sexy people investigating a sexy mystery around sexy artists, so yes, Jalo is the first thing you go to, but it appears that they are trying to capture the, like, B and C, Z grade 
uh, Jalo movies. Not the good stuff. Not like Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Not Four no. Flies on Grey Velvet. There's no. certainly no. I mean, even though they try and inject style, it's more of a Red Shoe Diaries type of style. Yes, than it is a wow, colorful swaths of red lightings style. You know, yeah. uh, Zalman King presents uh, Dario Argento. Yeah, this thing. It seems like I don't know why they didn't market this more focused on the erotic side of it than the horror side of it because honestly it looks more like a soft core than it does feels like a, a good horror film yeah you know there's lots of people fucking yeah <laughs> it's soft core porn more than hardcore horror once again another one that you can skip but the worst of all the olive film releases that we got yeah. of this horror one I'm sorry, I couldn't even get all the way through Zombies from Outer Space. I'll be completely honest with you, neither could I. Really? Okay, because I got like 40 I. minutes in, and I was like, what the fuck? This looks like it's a 70s, por- like bad 70s pornography. Yeah. Like one of those, like, oh, neighbor, we shot it, uh, my neighbor shot it in his garage, 70s pornography. And considering it was German, I was expecting somebody to get shit on. Yeah. Scheiße, Scheiße. That's in my Scheiße. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't even remember what the, I'm, I don't even know, should we even talk about this one? I don't remember what the fuck it was about. I was like, what? It was it was really confusing. I don't know. If we don't, we're, if we kind of adopt this mentality of let's just not talk about it, we're going to have shows where we're like, so what did you do today? Yeah? <laughs> Peanut brittle sounds good. All right, goodbye. Let's talk about cats. Let's Aren't they wonderful? <laughs> this movie is about a farmer. It takes place. Okay, here's the weird part about it. And maybe it's just because I've grown up in America and I'm not familiar with this in Europe. It takes place in the... 50s, but... In the, Bavaria. In Bavaria, and everyone in the village looks like it's the 1800s. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, they were slow to catch up. Uh, well, but, like, half their town... Like, there's a there's an, <laughs> a, a military base and a science lab, but right. then all the houses are, like, hobbles, and they're, like, milkmaids well, running around. It's supposed to be, like, an American military base, and everybody there speaks German. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Even when they do speak English, they speak it with a heavy German accent. Yeah. You're like, oh, all right. So a farmer finds a skull in his field that's like an alien skull, it's, and then... And then it bites him. And it bites him because... What? You know what this reminded me of? This reminded me of somebody trying to do seriously what Larry Blymeyer did as a comedy, as a send-up, with The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. Okay. Did you ever see that movie? Yeah, but it's been a long time. I love that movie. I think, that, I, I, think I like the other movie he did better, but I don't remember what that was. Oh, uh, yeah. He did like a haunted house clue-ish type Yes, thing. yes, he did. Yes, he did. I can't remember the name of that one. Uh, but yeah, like Lost Skeleton of Cadaver makes fun of the sci-fi movies of the 50s and does it with this really kind of absurdist bent that, that works really well. This movie feels because of how bad it is, like it was trying to do that, except that it's played completely seriously, and it fucking sucks. Yeah. Like, it is just terrible. It is a chore to get through, and I, mean, I, I I honestly could not. Honestly, Ed Wood films are better than this. Oh, my God, the effects when somebody, like, starts bleeding or gets, like, part of them ripped off. It's just like, what, what is that? This may be the only film that I can remember that we've ever reviewed on Digital Noise or before at Remote Viewing that I would call unreleasable. Yeah, you know what? I felt that way about most of the stuff from the the Martini release batch this week. And I'm just like, you know what? It reminded me of when I had to watch festival movies. And I would get about 45 to 50 minutes into just garbage and be like, there's no fucking way any festival would play this. And then inevitably, one of those titles would show up on some, you know, bargain basement companies. 
uh, you know, roster when we would review it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've already seen this movie because it got rejected for a festival I was a part of. Right, right. That's what all of the movies in this batch feel, feel like. like festival rejects. Yes, yeah. they feel like festival rejects. Now, I don't know quite what to feel exactly about Planet USA. I do, in fact, have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a step more in the right direction. I mean, I kind of admire what they're trying to do, and I feel like I should be offended, <laughs> but I'm not because I more or less agree with everything they're saying. Right. It's a German film called Planet USA that is basically trying to do like a more airplane-ish type of humor uh, version, live-action version of Team America. Um, you know, where the humor is just that much more punny and totally like just like anything, throwing everything at the wall they can think of. With a lot of Rambo thrown in there, too. Yeah, like, like definitely sending up Rambo as like the, the quintessential American soldier. Right. I mean, yeah. the main character is basically Rambo. The beginning is basically Rambo First Blood Part 2 if it was fucking terrible. Yeah. Which it, it kind of is, but in a totally what? different way. Sorry, I'm not a Rambo fan. You're wrong. First movie's great, and the last movie's great. Do not draw first blood in this review. Okay, sorry. Do not draw first blood in this review. <laughs> uh, but the government comes and grabs him, because uh, they're, they're supposed to be all Americans, even though, once again, all German, and even when they're not speaking German, they speak it with a heavy American English with a heavy German accent. Which I was okay in this case, because... It's a, clearly a satire. Well, it's a satire, and it's like, how many times... Has an American studio made a movie, like, for example, like Exodus, Gods and Kings, where it's like all these people are speaking fucking these American actors, well, not necessarily American, but Joel Edgerton's an American actor, uh, speaking English in a movie where they're supposed to be Egyptian and, you know, Jewish, and it's like, uh, okay, that's weird. Right, right. So it's like, turnabout is fair play. I I know, that's, it takes a second, you're like, why are you even making this movie? And then I was like, okay, they're clearly trying to savage uh, rabid Americanism. Anyway, so this not uh, Obama, they they clearly state at various times, yeah, Obama doesn't know what's actually going on. George Bush is still secretly in control. And, and you know, they make George Bush out to be such a blithering idiot. In some scenes, he's literally in a baby's crib going, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> So disturbing. Uh, and they're like, oh, we need you to get together your old team and take care of the special mission, which they do, and then proceed to send them on another special mission, which involves them Taking a space shuttle to the moon. Uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And doing stuff on the moon. And then they come back and then find out that everyone's been fucking them over and yada yada. I, one of the problems I had with this movie is the same problem I had with like Iron Sky. It's like I see what you're doing and I see like some of it is legitimate, legitimately funny. But I think there are moments where the joke is carried further than they know how to sustain it. And the effects work is really bad. The effects work is so, so bad. I will say, though, that I thought that uh, the cinematographer or the editor did a good job of working around the bad effects. They really did try to. He cuts it pretty – I mean, the whole film is like cut, 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 constant cuts. But he manages to make the action as good as you possibly can make it look, considering uh, how low it is. Uh, But uh, this is interesting from their IMDb page, apparently. Before creating the story, the writers Flo Lackner and uh, Jennifer Resney agreed on the following principles – one, never think about the non-existent budget. $30,000, apparently, is how much it costs. Number two, political correctness is not only boring, but also hypocritical. And three, in short, no compromises whatsoever. And you're like, oh, okay, y'all are somebody convinced you to buy into your own bullshit. Yeah, because no comp- we don't compromise. Yeah, yeah it's, and it's way too long. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It was like, seriously, you want to make this kind of movie as long as this is? 
I don't know. I mean, it's a curiosity is the thing about Planet USA. I think if you really loved Iron Sky and you're a big fan of the Astron 6 movies, you yeah, might dig it. You might dig this. But. Uh, but for me, it was like, this is the best of the lot, but that's not really saying much. True. Now, I think we're probably going to differ about uh, uh, Nightlight, which I even though think was, which is an American supernatural thriller, thank God, not German <laughs> at this point. I'm like, no more German! Friends! Nine! <laughs> we, we've already reviewed nine of them, so. Yeah. Uh, and not from Olive Films. Uh, I can't remember who put this one out, but I actually kind of liked the premise here in the setup. I think if anything, uh, they suffer from trying to throw too much into their film. Wow, yeah, I, I had the completely opposite reaction. I thought this movie had, the only idea they had going for it, in my opinion, was let's make a found footage movie without a camera. Well, what else do you have besides a camera when you're running around in the woods? Maybe a flashlight? Okay, cool, we'll do a POV movie from the from the perspective of the flashlight instead of a camera. For me, that's not a different en- enough departure no, no, from I, what everyone else I is agree. doing. I agree, that was just an excuse. We're like, we want to do this, but we don't want to have to deal with all the fucking, okay, who's holding the camera? Yeah. We'll just make the conceit, you're just saying whatever the flashlight's pointing at, there is no camera, so just, what the fuck, you buy into weirder shit than that with the regular found footage stuff, so just buy into this. And then I, once I realized that's what we were doing, I just never thought about it again. It was like, okay, that's just the filming gimmick. But, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, it, there is a lot of stuff we've seen before, certainly. And it's like five uh, teenagers go into this forest that's supposed to be haunted playing these flashlight games. I'm never quite clear what the game actually is. <laughs> no. It's called Nightlight, but what is the rules to this game? No, some sort of uh, hide and seek related thing. I'm Walk towards sure. scary stuff. Yeah. Um, go. But uh, then it turns out the woods is even more haunted than they think, and it's got a huge set of rules and mythology around it, and they start getting picked off and possessed. And and honestly, I thought there was some genuinely scary stuff in this. Some of the stuff I was like, wow, that's fucking freaky. It would be more freaky if you guys could stick to one story. Thank you. That is entirely my problem. <laughs> there are so many little things that are introduced that are never explained. Once they explain you what is really causing all the supernatural stuff, you go, okay, oh, well, wait a minute, then what was this? What was this? What? Yeah. Well, how does that tie into what you're saying the monster They're is? just like, the woods is just full shit. It's like where the Warehouse 13 of, like, haunted things. No, I think it's They're the writers everywhere. who are full of shit. I mean, as near as I can tell, the swamp thing is in here. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, like, various different possession demons. <laughs> Wolves, wolves are very wolves. angry. I forgot about that, like, angry psycho wolves. And they only nowhere. see it once. It has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And it's like, what? what? Why the wolf? I don't understand. It's like, you know, okay. Like, because that's early on. And you're like, oh, wow. So they're like possessed wolves or evil wolves. or and Call Liam Neeson. The last we see the wolf of the wolves. They're yeah. Like, that's all they could get the wolves for was that one day. Yeah, it feels like a movie that was kind of written as they went, and they just abandoned things along the trail. And for me, it was like a lot of like the character stuff. Oh my god, it was the same characters you see in every found footage movie. Like, to a T, nothing changed. And yeah, there's just so much stuff that's introduced that has nothing to do with the final resolution. And frankly, the final resolution of the movie, for me, doesn't... Like, what you actually find out it is makes no sense to me. Yeah. No, like I said, they they were not clear at all what their story was. And I think they were trying to go for, like, what if it was like Blair Witch, but instead of nothing happening, lots of stuff happens. And to their credit, that's true. There's a lot of, like, you know, shit going on. Once things get going, which doesn't take long, it's moving pretty fast with stuff happening to them. But... 
None of that stuff really pieces together well at all. It doesn't really make sense at the end. And at the best coming out of this, I was like, well, I didn't think the actors were that bad for young uh, teenage actors. I mean, the main girl, especially, I thought was pretty good, who was like the young, innocent, virginal one who secretly likes, not or not so secretly, one of the other boys in this group who's also, she's also kind of the nerd, so no, none of the other girls like her, and yada, yada. Those young characters. adult horror. Yes. Uh, and I thought, like I said, some like the guys who were coming up with the actual set pieces of the scary stuff, some of it was genuinely scary. I'm like, wow, it's too bad you're not working on a better film. See, it's <laughs> funny. It's not so much that we disagree on this movie. It's just that we don't dislike it to as much of a degree. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's true. We're not on opposite ends. We're just like... What, you're very man. I'm very. Meh. Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. Yeah, uh, I, I would say you get you got that right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I I will agree with you. There were a couple of things that I thought were legitimately creepy, but again, it's all very betrayed by a poor story. Just like, and again, how many times have I said this? I feel like I'm a broken record. Stick to your own shit. Like, you make up the rules, man. You are in charge of this universe, and I will go along with you, but just play by your own damn rules. Don't introduce a bunch of stuff that you never do anything with. Sure. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Uh, now, I was a little curious about Cut Bank, which was is a thriller that, even though it stars Liam Hemsworth, who, you know, is like Chris if he really barely could act. Yeah. <laughs> he sure looks like him, though. I'll yes, give him that. Uh, but it's got Billy Bob Thornton and John Malkovich in it. And I was like, oh, what's this? And it had played Toronto International Film Festival. And it had actually gotten some decent reviews comparing it with things. Well, in fact, uh, some of the people working on this also worked on the Fargo TV show. And I was like, oh, well, this sounds like my kind of thing. It was being compared as a Fargo-ish type story. Let's check it out. And sure enough, there's a lot of influence from that sort of filmmaking, from the Southern Gothic, from Fargo, what have you. Uh, but the problem is is that uh, none of these pieces really come together in a terribly satisfying way, I thought. Really? Uh, yeah, I thought especially... All right, so the story here is Liam Hemsworth and his girlfriend, they live in this tiny little town, the coldest town in America, as their sign proudly acclaims, Cut Bank, Montana. And they want to get the hell out of there uh, together. Uh, and they're, but they don't know how to. And he's, they're playing around with the camera at one point and he's filming her do like what I, as near as I can tell, a travelogue for the town in a field. And they see a murder take place behind them. Their local town mailman. Played by Bruce Dern. Played by Bruce Dern. Some guy walks up to him, shoots him, and, and they're like, oh fuck, hide. So they uh, bring it to the various, like John Malkovich, who plays Sheriff Vogel, who's uh, the, the town sheriff, and it's like, look at this, and to uh, her father, played by Billy Bob Thornton, who's sort of a town founder type character, and you're like, okay, so now I guess it's the the hunt for the killer, but things start to get weirder when Oliver Platt comes to town playing the, the I forget what the, the exact title is. but He the, is a postal investigator. Yeah, postal investigator, because they, as they make clear with the shot, there's a $10,000 reward of uh, for any information uh, that helps in the murder investigation of a postal employee. And they're like, okay, I'm starting to see here that maybe there's something bigger going on and Liam Hemsworth is involved. And the movie doesn't take long, and, and this isn't even a spoiler, because it's like 15 minutes into this film before. It's like, yes. They are involved. Bruce Dern is not dead. And uh, they're just trying to figure out how they can get this money and then skedaddle. But, uh-oh, it looks like something that was in that mail delivery belongs to the town weirdo. Let me just start by saying this. This is my pick of the week. Oh, wow. I loved this movie. Wow, okay. Because throughout the whole movie... You sit there and you pick at it because you've seen so many of these gothic films before, these film noirs, 
um, that you you feel like you know exactly what's going to happen. And for a, a percentage of the movie, it lets you believe. It courts that uh, it, it courts that familiarity and lets you think you know exactly what it's going to be, and it's going to be kind of a small potato story. And then you come to find out that what's really going on and the story simmering underneath the noir makes the actual crime story going on look like a bunch of people playing in the in the crime kiddie pool. And it's like what's really happening and the person who you should be worried about is not even the person who comes into play in the main crime. And I thought that was just such an interesting take. Like, well, everybody's so wrapped up in the complexities of their little their little uh, their little caper that they're pulling off, you are completely missing the real threat. You are completely missing the real story here. And I actually thought John Malkovich had one of his best performances in a long time. I love Bruce Dern in this. I can't believe they put a cast together that's this good. Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, who most of you know as Arnold Rothstein from Boardwalk Empire, is phenomenal in this. Just really creepy, really offsetting, and really off-putting. I, I, I loved this movie, and I did not expect much from it. Well, I didn't have any problem with the performances, to be sure. This is a great cast. Uh, Mike, Michael Stuhlberg, uh, as you were saying, playing the sort of... He's not mentally deficient. He's just fucking weird and broken guy. If, he was a more, if Milton Adams was more articulate, yeah. uh, he would be this guy. Uh, he's good, but... I think my problem is the same thing you like about it is that, yeah, it's a great idea that never feels like it really completely tonally comes together at all for me. I hmm. felt like the whole other, Oh, but there's this other thing. I was like, yeah, but that you it never, those two stories never seem to gel together comfortably at all. It felt like you're mashing two very different types of movies together because of a lack of technique there. There's some running jokes that feel like, okay, well, this is more than a joke. It means something. And no, it doesn't mean anything. It was their attempt at a joke that was just not funny. There's several of them in here. One of the most notable ones being everyone going with the character of Derby. Hey, I thought you were dead. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's just a running joke. Uh, like, okay, why was I supposed to laugh at that? There's several things like that. There's a thing with see, the sheriff and how he insists to be addressed that really doesn't play in See, and anything. I feel like this and, is where the comparisons to Fargo really hurt it, because I don't think this movie is trying to be funny. I don't really understand but, the comparisons But that's to what Fargo. I'm saying, is those things, they don't serve any other purpose, so why do they keep doing I, them I, if I, they're not see, trying to be funny? I think the whole I thought you were dead thing is really just... Uh, you know, one of those things like, one, to just establish that the guy's been a recluse, and two, like, I felt like it was just the fact that he wasn't acknowledging it was really, to me, what was important about that. It was never that people kept saying it, it was that he was never acknowledging it because he was he was just this weirdly, bizarrely focused character, and there was one thing in the whole world that he cared about, and it was the only thing that could make him come out of that reclusive state. And to me, that just that just kind of built the stakes up a little bit. Like, I didn't even see it really as a running joke. And I, I, I don't know. Like, I think the fact that it's set in Montana in the north and the fact that these guys worked on the Fargo show might be where a lot of the comparisons are coming in. But I don't think it's at any point really trying to be funny. I think there are moments where characters are adding some levity. But I don't, I don't know. Like, I didn't really get even, a, like, a dark comedy vibe from this. I got very straight, like... To me, like this was something more like Cold in July. Like I would never call Cold in July a comedy. No, no, because you know? it wasn't doing things that were trying to be funny and then failed. So that's where I think we differ. I don't think it feels like a black comedy at all either. But I mean, for instance, with the Derby thing, like at one point there's a guy who can't speak who literally writes on a pad to him, "Weren't you dead?" I mean, you can't tell me that wasn't supposed to be a part of a running joke for that being funny. Of course it was. It mm -hmm. just wasn't funny, and then it doesn't come to anything. And I'm like, 
okay. And there's if it was just that, I'd go, whatever. But there's a bunch of stuff like that that at the end I was like, so what was the point of all that other stuff if it wasn't – I guess it was just filler, hmm. you know? I don't, I don't know. know. I didn't have that problem. I mean, I'm glad you liked it. I don't think this is a terrible movie. It's just – you know, an almost ran for me hmm. is what it comes down to. And I think that's a shame when you assemble such a great cast and you have such an interesting idea for a film uh, that it's just not quite there. And part of that is Liam Hemsworth, who is really a total block of wood here, just like he is in everything. He's, he's not a great actor. I mean, I think that's that's pretty well established. But yeah, I, for me, this is one of those experiences where like, this is exactly why I love doing this show, because I never would have heard about this movie any other way. And it really did surprise me and really did kind of throw me for a loop, and I really, really enjoyed it. So. Oh, I did like Teresa Palmer in here, though, as the girl, uh, like the love interest, who is basically, she's the Kristen Stewart if she could act. Yes. Uh, she's like, which, to be fair, Kristen Stewart's gotten a lot better. But uh, she looks, she's like a blonde Kristen Stewart. Every time I see her for a second, I'm like, is that Kristen Stewart? No, it's not. It's no, that no. other girl who I like more. Not Kristen Stewart <laughs> at all. But yeah, I, I highly recommend checking this out if you like film noir and again just the cast alone i think is worth the price of admission well cool i'm uh, glad you enjoyed that one because some of somebody should have gotten something out of it <laughs> uh next up is uh cymbeline uh, which we, sounds like a disney princess movie. i was about to say that it, it does, is not totally it is definitely not a disney princess movie it is in fact one of shakespeare's plays that is was widely considered to be one of the worst plays he ever wrote <laughs> wasn't it like lost for a long time too well, didn't they like discover that not too terribly I, long ago it, it, I, you know i don't maybe uh, when i was reading about the history of it there was like there's been controversy over this play and whether it's really actually secretly good or <laughs> believe it or not or really terrible for centuries mm. like where various famous writers have opined at length their feelings about this and ultimately the defenders came to seem to come down on the side oh shakespeare was actually kind of this was late in his career mm. and he was actually making fun of his own plays at this point <laughs> which would make sense when you realize how many like almost everything in this story is taken from another shakespeare play all mashed up together oh yeah no absolutely like there's othello elements all over the place oh, romeo and juliet obviously romeo and juliet big time there's a lady macbeth in this movie like yeah. and the whole thing is being put into modern day and basically into uh the show sons of, sons Anarchy. of Anarchy. Yeah, yeah which mm -hmm. it feels you know sometimes when they do that sort of thing it really like the the up you know changing the time period it really feels oh that made a lot of sense here it just felt like oh sons of Anarchy is really popular right now i think i figured out why this didn't work for me and this is just at least on, on my level it's because Fantasy and television drama have started to feel in and of themselves so Shakespearean in their story construction that I don't necessarily need an adaptation of Shakespeare to be modernized. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I, I have seen enough great television, great, like, like Sons of Anarchy, for example, is fucking Hamlet on wheels. Like, there's so much that has borrowed... Like, Game of Thrones has so many Shakespearean elements in it, it's ridiculous. But, you know, I mean, like, I appreciate a lot of people like the original text and, and what have you, uh, and that's fine. It's just, if you're going to do a modern-day Shakespeare adaptation, oh, yeah, somebody already did Romeo and Juliet, and guess what? You've got to do better than that, or why are you even bothering? And well, I think that's my problem, is, like, I feel like the the idea that something has to be modernized is to say that people need to see it in a new context to understand it. And I feel like the new context is already kind of there. Just because these shows aren't adapting directly from Shakespeare, like, that context already exists. So for me, I'm like, if, if the language is really what's the best part for you, 
just do a straight adaptation. Like, I don't necessarily need it to be modernized with, like, a gimmick. I, I just, I don't think I need and that And this particular upgrade to, to a different time is decidedly awkward at points. Yeah. Uh, but the story... Oh, God, trying to tell the story. The cops are thing. Romans? That doesn't make any fucking sense. If, if they didn't call them Romans, if they just let the police be the police and didn't call them Romans or made the chief of police's name Roman... Yeah. That would have made sense, but they keep referring to the cops as Romans. Because they're using the original text, so why not change the text just enough? Change it at least, or just change the guy's name, the police chief that comes in in the movie, change his name to Roman, then we don't have an issue. But that was the part that kept taking me out of, like, stop calling the cops Romans. Stop it, you're cheating. Uh, Red Harris plays the titular character of Cymbeline, even though he's not the main character at all. Uh, who is the lead of the biker gang that more or less rules the city and, in fact, pays protection money to the police, which are the Romans, you know, so in the real story, they're Britons and then Romans, what have you. And he has decided, I'm tired of paying this money to the police and uh, fuck them, basically because his uh, wife, his second wife, notably, played by Mila Jovovich, has been whispering nefarious things into his ear. Kill Duncan. (laughs) Kill Duncan. Uh, Meanwhile... Uh, there's a young love affair going on between his kind of adopted son, this kid he sort of brought into the family, uh, and his actual daughter, played by Dakota Johnson. Uh, and the problem is, is that the queen wants uh, their daughter to marry this kid, Cloten, played really like I don't get this at all by Anton Yelchin. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Anton Yelchin understood one lick of what he was saying, which is weird because he's a good actor. He is. But I don't think he understood one word of what the fuck he was doing. <laughs> uh, and so there's a lot of like, you know, they're from two different worlds and it's not okay for them to get married. And so they run off and there's a lot of, oh, he's dead, but not really. Oh, no way. She thinks he's dead. Now he thinks she's dead. There's, Oh my God! There's a there's a this thing with with uh, 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 Delroy Lindo who comes out of nowhere in the middle of the film. Who's like, hey, I have these two sons. I totally uh, stole them from you. Yeah, one of which was the uh, oh God, the kid from oh what is his name? Uh, Spencer Treat Clark, I think. Yeah, who was the kid from Unbreakable? Now all grown up and muscular. Are you serious? It's yeah. a kid from Unbreakable. It's a kid from Unbreakable. Weird. Yeah. yeah, I looked at his face. I was like, I know, I know, he was a kid actor. I just can't place it. Weird. Yeah, uh, and you know, and then they have this special relationship that's going to wrap up nicely in a bow at the end, so everything's fine. It's this is just silly Shakespeare stuff that, like, like I said, the defenders who are like, I think he was pulling self parody. Maybe so. I mean, even the point that one of the characters' name is posthumous, and that, <laughs> and that is a pun related to what happens with his character. So it's like, and Shakespeare punned a lot, but still, that's such a blatant. He's one. the original pun master that everyone hated. I had to look it up to see if maybe the word posthumous came from this, and no, it did not. No, it did. It not. was around before this, so yeah. it was in fact a pun. I don't know. I mean, Ethan Hawke plays a really minor character in here as a guy who is just trying to stir up shit just for the fuck of it with yep. the, 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 the younger romantic lead character and trying to convince him, oh, yeah, I totally fucked your girlfriend. She was into it. Uh, just because. Just because. <laughs> it's Yeah, it, it's not a very... There are moments I thought were really cool, but they, they don't last long and they're few and far between. I 
Yeah, and Bill Pullman in here, who's taking the role of basically what was the god Jupiter in the original play, which was completely a deus ex machina, and Mm -hmm. in here plays like the dead father of the the romantic lead character, and I didn't even know why he was here. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck is he, what was the point? He comes in, delivers an impassioned speech that I couldn't translate. (laughs) Yeah, it's so sad to you. Ed Harris, Mia Jovovich, Ethan Hawke, John Linguizamo... Uh, Anton Yelchin, Kevin Corrigan, Bill Pullman, Delroy Lindo. Like, this cast is... Jane's Ransone. This is a cast that should be in a much better movie. And I just feel like... I feel like they're like, we're doing Shakespeare. We're doing it as cops versus bikers. And it's like, okay, but do, do you really understand the text? Is that the best thing for it? It's cops versus bikers. <laughs> okay, you, you run with that. Well, back to the Olive films. The two ones I thought that were actually worth checking out this week were two that are really sort of like afterthoughts for Monty Python fanatics. Yes. And the days following like the, you know, the hierarchy of like great Monty Python films, they all sort of spread out and started doing their own thing in clumps where two or three of them working together on any given film that weren't actually Python films, but were like sort of Python films. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and one of these was the 1983 film Yellowbeard that was a chance for Graham Chapman to decisively take the lead and in fact, he is the best thing in this movie. Uh playing, you know, the this film's equivalent of Blackbeard along with, you know, the pirate who shoves flaming stuff in his beard, smoking stuff to be all scary, and he is this complete raving lunatic m- madman serial killer of a pilot that's fucking hysterical to watch whenever he's on screen. Yeah. Unfortunately, no one else in this movie or the script is anywhere near as good as Graham Chapman actually is. No, actually, and it's funny, like, the moments that, that work best for me were the moments when Madeline Kahn was on screen. Like, yeah. I, I agree with you, though. Graham Chapman is is amazing as Yellowbeard, but I think uh, Madeline Kahn had me laughing more than, even than he did. And, and I agree with you, like, it's just... Oh my god, you can see why you need all of the Python guys together to make stuff work. Yeah, or, or you know, or I at mean, least Terry Gilliam. <laughs> and this is, I mean, this was written by a solid team and Graham Chapman and Peter Cook, who's one of the major names in British comedy as well, wrote this together with two other guys who I don't know who they are. Uh, and you've got so much talent in this film. Peter Cook's in this, Cheech and Chong are in this, which is bizarre. So bizarre. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mar- uh, Martin Hewlett, always very funny, Eric Idle and John Cleese. Both have roles in this. James Mason, Hello. Spike Milligan. I don't know why I'm in this movie. <laughs> no one told me oh, what it was. David Bowie has a small appearance in this. <laughs> That's right, he does. Which was like, holy fuck, is that David Bowie? Uh, but the idea is Yellowbeard is a you know the worst pirate ever. He gets caught, but for tax evasion. Ha, ha, ha. And he's been in jail for 20 years, but they keep everybody wants to get out of him where is your treasure and he is not willing to tell anyone where his treasure is and finds out that they're going to try and increase his sentence because it's about to 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 end and he says fuck it I'm going to escape and the Navy knows this because then they want to follow him which doesn't which makes you wonder why did they increase his sentence if they know once he leaves he's going to why didn't they let him out why didn't they just let him his sentence end and then he would go after the treasure anyway yeah but uh he finds out that he has a son who is this very you know non-piratey kid who he raids books yeah who his mother who he just raped he's like there's no way i raped you i've never raped anyone and left them alive Uh here's the thing if you take all the rape jokes out of this movie it's about 10 minutes long yeah there's a lot of rape jokes so many rape jokes and and yet somehow there's it's just all so fucking absurd, and the nature of the way they do it, it just kind of 
it never comes across as offensive. Oh, no, it's not that it's offensive. It's just like, guys, come on. Yeah. There's other stuff on. to make jokes but hearing about. Madeline Kahn, like, be, try to be romantic about getting raped is indeed kind of funny. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, sorry, it just is. you got to see it. Uh, so it ends up with this, you know, cr- cross-sea trip with the... Yellowbeard, who has like done the worst job ever of sneaking onto a ship and then just randomly raping people while he's there. Yeah. Like I love one of the the they, they, all these. There's a scene where all these people are trying to sneak woman onto the ship, and then later it's like the first mate is Mrs. Mister Prostitute. It's clearly just a blonde chick with a fake mustache. Drawn. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like all of the, I, I kind of understand why the Monty Python guys worked together for as long as they did because. If you look at the films we're going to talk about, like between this and, and the next film, is they're they're both Odyssey films. And if you look at Terry Gilliam's best stuff, those are also Odyssey films. Yeah, and this that's the thing is like the, the next film we're going to talk about more so than this one definitely feel Gilliam esque at points. Yes. Uh, oh my god! Like to the point that I was like, Are you sure he wasn't involved? I think Time Bandits may have been. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, like as these things sort of go, there is definitely some pretty funny stuff in here. It's just. It kind of comes and goes. There's uh, there's more stuff that doesn't work than does, but there's a lot of stuff that does work. Graham Chapman, always a pleasure to see him doing good work, and he is, in fact, doing good work here. This is a footnote for Python, but it's a decent little footnote. Ooh, let me try to Gene Shallot this. Hold on. Okay. Uh, Yellowbeard, a cutting comedy, but not quite a treasure. Okay. All right. Don't Please. ever do that again. All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the film I thought is definitely better than that, but still not up to the level of, like, yes, it is a must-see Python film, is Eric the Viking, which came out in 1989, uh, written and directed by Terry Jones, who's another member of Python, of course, based on a children's book he wrote in 83 called The Saga of Eric the Viking. Two questions. Yes. One, well, not a question. One question. Did the book also feature jokes about rape because once again this movie opens with a joke about rape like an extended joke about it, rape it does in fact have it in fact the the rape joke is part of the premise of the entire film it drives the rest of the movie in fact it was for yellowbeard too i guess what the so. fuck is going on <laughs> uh no in fact that this is a very different story than the book it's based on but basically tim robbins who is not does not very convincing as a viking because he's supposed to be more of a like hey guys do we always have to like kill everyone and rape everyone it just seems like that's just not cool man uh is you know he's the, hippie viking. Is the son of the head viking in this tribe uh led by mickey rooney who's like why am i here well i mean uh, if you're going for an insane person to lead your tribe yeah look no further uh but he he really has a breakdown when he's on a uh, a pillaging trip and he comes in and he's supposed to rape this woman and realizes he doesn't want to rape this woman. He just doesn't want to. And he kills her by accident. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she but, says, thanks for saving me from a fate worse than death before she dies. So he finds out from Freya, who is not in fact a goddess in this one, but just a wise woman played by Eartha Kitt, that Fenrir, Fen, Fenrir, the wolf, has swallowed the sun and the world is in Ragnarok and that's why everyone is killing and murdering and raping and what have you. So he manages to basically trick all the extremely stupid Vikings who are, for all extents and purposes, the seven dwarves here yeah. uh, into coming with him. <laughs> Drinky, slashy, <laughs> yeah. rapey, bonkers. Yeah. Uh, to look for, to try and get to Asgard is their goal, to awaken the gods and end Ragnarok so humanity can be down at Ragnarok. Yeah. But uh, meanwhile, some people aren't too happy about this because they don't want Ragnarok to end, uh, not the least which is the local uh, blacksmith who's like, 
convinced by his toady, look, uh, if uh, if Ragnarok ends, you're not going to have a lot of business anymore. Yeah. And then, of course, the guy who is the local warlord, played by John Cleese, who is half Half Dan the Black, who goes on a, a chase across the world trying to stop them from re- reaching Asgard. And along the way, it's a very Baron Munchausen series. But that's of exactly events. the movie I kept thinking of as Baron Munchausen. I mean, really goofy, ridiculous stuff. They have giant sea dragon and like uh, all, all sorts of Baron Munchausen. I mean, this is a very lesser like Marin Munchausen or, or Time Bandits type film, but it is still a film that's a lot like those films. Yes. Uh, and I think there's a lot, a lot of good stuff here. There's a lot of sequences I thought were really funny. Um, one, there's a, there's a Christian with them who has been camped out there trying to get somebody to convert forever who comes with them and he can't see any of the stuff anybody else can see. Like the dragon and Asgard because he doesn't believe in it so it literally does not exist for him. <laughs> it's a funny bit. Uh, the other best bit is there's a they, there's a point where uh, they find a love interest for Tim Robbins played by uh, Imogen Stubbs who is on this enchanted island and uh, she gives him a cloth that she tells him, oh, whenever you wear it, you know, you can't be seen. It's a cloak of invisibility. And he runs off at one point to grab it to, to try and deal with some bad guys, only to find out, like, you know, not to find out, hey, it only works on my dad, not anyone else. And she tries to tell him. So there's this whole action scene where he's running around, you can't see me, da-da! <laughs> and the guys are like, what the fuck? And he's managing to kill all these guys because they're, they're just, just so baffled yeah, at yeah, what yeah. he's doing. It's a really genuinely funny scene. Yeah, I think there's funny bits in this. I don't, I'm, I don't know, like, neither one of these comedies really worked especially well for me, but I don't know, like, maybe it's because I was spoiled so much on Time Bandits. I love that movie so much, and I really felt a lot of Time Bandits, Baron Munchausen influence. Like, I, to me, it's like, this is Terry Jones going, no, I'm the other Terry. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I don't, I mean, there's there's some fun parts to it, but it just didn't work for me overall. I mean, this definitely felt more, like, in some way, in the comedy parts, more Holy Grail-ish mm-hmm. than, than Yellowbeard, certainly. And it makes sense, because Terry Jones directed The Holy Grail. That's true. Uh, in Life of Brian. And did you see Jim Broadbent was one of the two Viking rapists in the very beginning of the there film? There are people credited in this movie as just a rapist. <laughs> a rapist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is much more so than Yellowbeard, well worth your time and worth checking out. I mean, if you're a Python fan, shit, you should have seen this by now. There's I would a agree lot with of stuff that. that will make you very happy, but no, this is not one of the ones that stands up with the other Python films. So there you go. Not so much. Not so much. Sorry. Sorry. But still worth your time. Run away. Run away. Run away. Uh, another fantasy film is Seventh Son. Hey, this is a film we're talking about that actually came out recently. It did. <laughs> wow. This is a recent release. And we even reviewed it on the site. We did. Next movie. Next week. No. no uh, we, Can we link audio-wise? Like, I'm going to say the link just, and you go I'll like, just edit it in. <laughs> We're lazy. Uh, this is a, a big fantasy, big but in a relatively inexpensive fantasy film starring uh, Jeff Bridges. Oh, go ahead, do it. <laughs> okay, there you go. Jeff Bridges as a... Uh, the, the last of the what was he, the last of the witch oh he's like basically the head of the x-files in, in yes. medieval times he's like the a, x-tomes yeah he's he's a knight who used to be a member of a huge group of knights who are specifically there to fight giant supernatural threats and witches and what have you but now there's just him left and he goes out to get a new apprentice uh he finds ben barnes for the apprentice and they're chasing after uh, Julianne Moore, who's an evil witch who has a previous relationship of sorts with Jeff Bridges. And it's a big, goofy, 
goofy fantasy film that feels nothing less than those, you know, C grades fantasy films that used to come out in the 70s and 80s, but it feels like one of the good ones. Yeah, this feels to me like not as good as, but at least kind of in the same spirit as something like Dragon Slayer or yeah. something, you know, something from the 80s. That or was like, Beastmaster. Yeah, or yeah it's like, like yeah. yeah, we know there are things we have to forgive about it. We get that, but like, I feel like it's so earnest in its attempt to just deliver a fun adventure story with a lot of this sort of like, uh, a lot of the thrill and 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 fantastical elements that we loved as kids that I don't know I find I find it difficult to hate on this movie. Yeah, I didn't hate this at all. In fact, a lot of critics are really talking giving it a firm meh and I'm like maybe you guys just never enjoyed watching those other films cuz for me this felt I mean yeah, this ain't Lord of the Rings, but it's a hell of a lot better than most of the fantasy films we get and in fact there's more than enough fun to be had here. Is Jeff Bridges is really funny in this movie. Yep. Gets gets to do a lot of cool stuff. Ben Barnes is a satisfying lead in this. Uh at its worst Julianne Moore kind of looks like I don't know what I'm doing here. Although she time. is chewing scenery in the way that every 80s fantasy villain did and I love that. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean that's what it is is like it I can't help but think that when they made this, they were trying to make specifically a sword and a sorcerer or something like that. Yeah. And I don't see what the problem is. And it even looks good. Even the effects weren't too bad. Yeah. No, I I think this is a really fun movie. I don't think it's going to end up on anybody's even top 30 list of the year. No, no. But it's a lot of fun. There's And and everything that's wrong with it is like, yeah, okay. And I get that. And you're not wrong. But – it's it doesn't detract from how much enjoyment I had watching this. Uh, and there's uh, alternate ending. There's a bunch of deleted alternate scenes. There's about a 15 minute making of Seventh Son uh, series of featurettes. A uh, brief supplement on the real life lore of the Seventh Son, which where why that's supposed to be an important thing mythologically speaking. And then a look at the, the visual real effects. life made up lore of this. Major no, no, no. Story. The Seventh Son actually is a is a thing. Oh, yeah, that actually is a real thing from I mythology. It's supposed to be some mystical importance to the Seventh Son. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, sorry. What are There's you? There's nothing mystical about my past. You were like the first son, weren't you? It's like beer and cheese. You, you get to be king if your dad was king. That's about it. Oh, other than that, mm-hmm. you get nothing. Is That's your dad sad. king? No. Yeah, you're fucked. No. Well. Nobody cares about your issues. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, but yeah, I recommend Seven Son. I I had a, a lot of fun with it. Totally. Yeah. Uh, now there's magician. Which is not about magicians. What well, is kinda? It's about a man who could be considered a magician. Well, he was actually a practicing magician. Yeah, but that's not what he's known for. What's well, actually <laughs> called magician: the astonishing life and work of Orson Welles, uh, who, of course, is even though he's not generally thought of as the greatest filmmaker of all time, he's thought of as the guy who made the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane. And this film exists if for no other reason, I think, to try and say, hey, you know, he did some really other cool shit too, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be the point of this. And it's a glossy, perhaps overly glossy documentary, but still, like, a, this is like an introductory work to if all you know him from is Citizen Kane. Yeah. Why you should understand who this guy was, why people take so seriously the things he did, what he did for the rest of his life after Citizen Kane, why he had so many troubles, and how all that is even reflective even still today of the way the Hollywood studio system works and the way sometimes it tamps down the true talent and we don't even know it's there till decades later. Yeah, and there was, I, you know, I will admit that there was a lot in this documentary that I didn't know about <laughs> Orson Welles. Um, and the the way it was edited, the way the information was presented, reminded me a lot of, although nowhere near as good, but it reminded me a lot of the documentary Dial H for Hitchcock, mm. which if you haven't got a chance to see, track that down and watch it. It is a brilliant documentary um, where they use a lot of Hitchcock's like 
uh, scenes from his films and music from his movies to kind of tell Hitchcock's story as a parallel. Uh, and it's narrated by Kevin Spacey. Uh, but this movie had those moments, and part of it was like, like Peter Bogdanovich shows up in both of those documentaries, I think wearing the exact same outfit. Any, any film about a doc, a, a film director uh, that is from the eighties or before Peter Bogdanovich is going to appear. At there he point. is. There's Bogdanovich. Yeah. But yeah, no, there was, I, I really liked the, the segment when they were talking about, uh, war of the worlds and like how specifically he pulled it off. Cause the one thing they never talk about when they talk about war of the worlds is at the end. At the end, it goes from being a newscast to being a first-hand account. And at the very end, when the guy says they're coming out of the ship, they're coming out of the ship, they just cut it off. And you have to remember, now this is a time before the internet, the primary source of information for a lot of people was the radio, and no one had ever fooled them with it before. Right. So when it just cut off and was silent, and Orson Welles, like, Force them to just stand there and leave for like it twenty seconds for twenty seconds of nothing. I can understand how that would be the scariest fucking thing you've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, no, you totally get why people believe that was what was happening, and yeah. you get to see a lot of the anger that came from that, as well as a lot of people turning and going, "Wait, that was kind of brilliant, actually." And that was really his shot across the ballot. Hey, I'm a genius <laughs> for yeah. the rest of the world to see, anyway. Uh, and you know the rest is almost a very almost a tragedy with all the just all the projects that he'd start and then was never allowed to finish. He's got something like twenty unfinished films. It's just yeah, insane. they just found one. Yeah, yeah, they did. They well, literally just which, found one, which is according to this film batshit insane. Yeah, yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a book about it out now that I've been hearing great things about him and wanting to pick up, but. Um, yeah, like the best parts of this are when it's Wells, when they're talking to Wells himself. He's a funny guy. He's a really funny guy. He's a very smart guy. A lot of good things to say. And watching him as he kind of gets more cynical and jaded as time goes on. One of my favorite moments in this is he's a, he's attending a lecture at a film school and a student asks him, what do you think your responsibility is to a mass audience? And he goes, I would love to have a mass audience someday. He was def- and it was funny. Like he was also a stud. I mean, even after he was like you know the the drink no wine guy and the selling frozen peas guy, yeah. he was sleeping with like supermodel level chicks. Rita fucking Hayworth. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. He was. Wow. He, he he acquitted himself well. He did. He did. In <laughs> fact, you know, say what you will about the man. He had sex with a lot of hot ladies. <laughs> that started yes, off. That's what we're going to focus on. You know, he did some movies, whatever. Whatever. Yeah, he also had sex with Rita Hayworth. More like Citizen Dong. <laughs> All right, so next up is a tiny little film called Coffee Kill Boss. I don't get this title. Yeah. Just I, Coffee, comma, Kill Boss. Yeah. This is the second worst title, I think, of any movie we're going to talk about. Which is a show. shame, because I think this is actually a pretty good little indie comedy. It's fun. And it's I a lot of fun. hardly ever like indie comedies. Like, if there's any film that's going to be just atrocious that was made for almost no money, it's almost always little comedies. Like, comedy is the hardest thing to do. Like, yeah. the hardest. The most subjective genre. We've talked about that time and time again. And this is one of those ones that is not going to be for everyone. But, hey, did you like Clue? It is so Clue. Yeah. Like, it, it, like there, there is no other movie to which this film owes its existence more than Clue. Even the, the opening sequence. Even the soundtrack, which is all, like, really hyperbolic and excited and super dramatic, is very Clue. It's bouncy. It's very yeah. bouncy music. Yeah. Uh, and the idea is is that there's this guy who is the uh, the son of the 
former owner of this big company. His dad has passed away a while back, but there's a you know, another guy that's currently in ch- charge, played briefly by Robert Forster. Robert Forster, one of my favorite actors. If I had a complaint yeah. with this movie, not enough Robert not Forster. Not enough Robert Forster. Uh, to to point there. He it's clear very early on that none of the other guys like him, even though he's being groomed to eventually take over the company. And he goes in to talk to the boss only to find out Rob Forster has hung himself. He is the Mr. Body. Yes, he is. And it proceeds from there as they discover all the doors are locked, all the telephones are off, and someone, one at a time, is killing them off. In fact, has even prepared a slideshow that goes off every time one of them dies with a sort of stick figure death thing of however they died. And they all start, you know, double and triple thinking everything and suspecting each other. And, you know, it's Clue. Just and, well, there's even a lot of building. There's a lot of comedy even with moving around the dead body. And where's the body now? I'm like, yeah, this this is someone going... I want to mash up Clue with Office Space. I yeah. want to see if that'll work. Yeah, it's that's exactly what I thought about it. And the thing is, this sort of thing is either it would could easily have not worked at all. But I think that they were cribbing so heavily from Clue that they found that that that's why it works. Well, and I think it's, it's that think, level of absolute goofiness. Yeah, and I think it's you can tell that the filmmakers, the writers understand why Clue works. They don't just know yeah. the gags. They understand why those things are funny and how to time them. And yeah, there were there were parts of this movie that I thought were really legitimately funny. Yeah. No, I, I found myself like, you know, ready to just go whatever and then going, huh, I'm actually with you, movie. I, I, I'm here. Let's see where you bring this. And sure enough, I thought the ending was a little like, okay, you know, at the very least you should have gone... But maybe this happened. <laughs> now we just want it to end like Clue. I mean, you guys are trying so hard to to, to to be Clue, you might as well go the whole hog and have done that. Because the ending they came up with was very like, eh, you know? Yeah. Wh- why not do that? Would like anybody seriously point the finger and go, Jacques You know what, Chris? Don't hate the player. Hate the board game, right? <laughs> See, there's time to re-edit and go back. It's a small <laughs> DVD release. Uh, I, I believe this is on, yeah, it's on Netflix, so you can check it out, and Hulu, and Amazon Prime. It's worth your time. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Worth a look. Okay. Scrolling, 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 scrolling. song. Making sure we took good yeah, time to suddenly it stopped talk scrolling. about all this. Should oh, we do? Yeah. yeah. Let's go to our Criterions. Two uh, Criterions from one filmmaker. Yeah. Coster Garb- Gavris, who is probably best known for films like The Battle of Algiers and Z, and I believe I Am Cuba. Can't remember. But uh, this is, the two films we're talking about are State of Siege and The Confession, which were both made uh, a, uh, with Yves Montand, who's a very excellent uh, French actor. Uh, one of those guys you see him, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy. Mm-hmm. And they're both like, like Costa Gavras does all political films. That's like all he does. Oh, oh these movies are super duper political. Uh, super duper duper. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No question at all. And they were made very close to each other. Uh, the Confession came out in 1970. And this is, I think, the better of the I two. I agree. 100%. Uh, this is a very sort of, uh, oh, what is the name? What's the name of that one in Turkey with the American guy who gets put thrown in prison? Rosewater. No, 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 no. Like in the 80s. oh, 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 uh, Midnight Express. Midnight Express. This is yeah. more like more like that with Robert De Niro on the run. With no, wait, shit, that's a different Midnight film. Well, that, yeah, that's Midnight Run. Yeah, sorry, yeah, 
Sugarland Express. <laughs> the Express. Uh, it's about, this is based actually on a true story based on a guy who wrote the book afterwards about his experiences, Anton Ludwig, uh, who was the vice minister of foreign affairs of Czechoslovakia. He starts to figure out that someone is following him and it's like, well, that's weird because he's like very high up in the government there and part of the Communist Party. He's like, why does no one seem to know why I'm being followed? And then, of course, sooner or later, it happens. They throw him into the back of a van and is put into jail, and the rest of the movie is basically him being tortured, trying to say, you will admit that you were part of this, you know, conspiracy, this conspiracy here. Yeah. You And uh, eventually V shows up, of course, and frees him, and then shaves his head, and then he becomes a superhero. But, no, wait, that's V from That's Vendetta. V from Vendetta. Damn it! Sorry. But there are elements there. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Alan Moore watched this before he made V for Ven- wrote V for Vendetta. And to me, you know what's funny about this is to me this had a very uh, like Arthur Miller um, like Crucible vibe to it. Like, oh yeah, totally. It was, it was very much a witch hunt, and 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 it's kind of set against this political backdrop of what was going on in Czechoslovakia. And you know, it's got a really tragic ending, but it's not the tragic ending that you expect. It's tragic in what the ending represents more than what actually happens. Yeah. Which is probably the most pretentious thing I've ever said. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I really like the journey that this guy goes on and like the way they try to break him down. And, you know, since it's based on a true story, um, you know, they, the way they're able to kind of deliver information because the guy narrating it is the guy in the story. And you realize he's kind of like finishing up the memoir that ends up being the book on which this is based. And And even as it goes, you're like, he's talking to people that takes place later. So, you know, he makes it, uh, but there's points during the uh, narrative where he'll flash back to earlier things that people said and puts it together stuff that was going on, even as he's retelling this story. That's a really interesting way that they put that together. I can't help but wonder if this is one of the first films to this distinctly and elaborately profile what, this kind of torture is about and how it works. Yeah. The, the, you know, lack of sleep, uh, expo- lack of exposure to light and then bright lights and then uh, forcing him to tricks, walk. Every every moment he's in the cell, he has to be, they're like, Marche! Marche! And, and then just make him walk. And it's exhausting watching this movie, but it's such a great performance from him, from the lead interrogator as well. And certainly the fact that this is all true and the, that his thoughts on this all of like the problems. I mean, this isn't even an attack on communism. It's an attack on totalitarianism. Yes. It's at one point finds that one of his tormentors was in fact an ex Nazi mm-hmm. who is there confronting this guy because he's not communist enough. And you're like, really? Yeah. That guy, that guy really is talking to me. You're talking to me. Uh, this being criterion comes of course, with a lot of extra features kind of disappointed. It just comes with a single sheet fold out instead of a booklet or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, there's an archival documentary uh, that looks lots of interviews with everyone involved with this. There's a Midnight Sun Film Festival interview with Costa Gavras that's pretty long. Uh, 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 interviews with a lot of stuff with just a lot of stuff with just everybody involved with the film. It's Criterion, so you know it's good. A lot of interviews. Uh, yeah. State of Siege, directed in 1972. Yves again, this time playing a official of the U.S. Agency for International Development, which in fact was a front more often than not for the CIA, right? Uh, who has been posted to Uruguay. And this is not based strictly on a true story. It's kind of a 
it's based on a real story, but not directly. It's kind of a side. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, okay, yeah. this is just like what happened, but we're changing the names and the place. Can I ask you a question? What is uh, Costa Gavras's uh, nationality? I want to say he's Cuban. Okay. Uh, I think he's Cuban, and I can you can talk while I click on because like Cuban revolution body. and social upheaval are. I'm uh, sorry, he's Greek French. My he's Greek French yeah. are a constant running theme in his films, and yet he sets them in different. It's really interesting to me that it's like a guy who has the the political uh, directedness of someone who is like a, a nationalist or has. Like, you know, it's just very loyal to their country and its history, except he's jumping all over the world with these stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, he's not interested in one particular region. He's interested in, like, themes of political dissent and revolutionaries and communism in a lot of these films. It's more of a, it just makes his movies more humanistic than nationalistic. And I think that's, for as political as they are, I think that's really fascinating that he's a guy that can make really political stories that really don't have any national origin because he goes all over the world. Very true. Well, uh, Eve's here. He plays Philip Michael Santor. We see right in the beginning of the film, he dies. And then it flashes back, okay, here's what happened. He's kidnapped by a group of gorillas. Uh, They're called uh, Tupamaro gorillas and who are trying to revolt against the government and force them to change their ways on a number of things that they're doing that are pretty fascist and awful. And it's you basically his captors interrogating him, trying to get him to admit, come on, you work for the CIA. Don't fuck with us. We know you do. Uh, and it's... It's mainly about just kind of show how, like, neither side is doing, making the right decisions here, yeah. but also kind of focus on how hard it is to be a revolutionary and not be violent yourself. These yeah. guys, like, we really don't want to be violent if we don't have to. Well, what the fuck are you supposed to do in a scenario with a just incredibly oppressive regime? Yeah. Um, you say you want a revolution. I think, well, I think there's a lot of good conversation to be had from this one, but ultimately, this is. I feel like it was trying to cover more ground. Uh, philosophically than the confession was and as such some of the sense of character got a little lost along the way for me the difference is that this movie does not even attempt to have the same amount of dramatic or engaging photography as yes. as the first one did the confession even though it had a significantly bigger budget which is so weird to me because the confessions like the confession has Hitchcock like cinematography oh, yeah. and and part of it as well the confession is a better transfer I don't know that's the confession true too. looked great this kind of looks a little iffy it must have been better elements I guess available for the confession yeah, but I be. I greatly preferred the confession yeah even though this is the once again this is the one it was this was nominated as best foreign language film at the Golden Globes and won the UN award at the BAFTA awards this was generally considered to be the better film and so I will strange. tell you that it is not it is not <laughs> it's still worth watching it's still valuable part of uh, Gavras's uh, cinematic history, but I would say go for the confessional. And you know what? Again, this is what I love about Criterion, is I probably would have never seen a Costa Garvis movie if it weren't for Criterion, and I I didn't really have any idea that you could make a political movie without having the bias of your own politics or your own nationalism. I didn't think that that was inherently possible, Right. but here's Costa Garvis to do to exactly that. It. Uh, this comes with another one of those leaflets with an essay thing and has a new film, a brand new film conversation with Costa Gavras, who's still alive, talking about how State of Siege actually happened, as well as a NBC News broadcast on Dan A. Mitrione, who is the character that the main character near Yves Montand is playing, was based on, the, the real-life figure that he was inspired by. So, interesting stuff, good criterion stuff. 
There you go. There you have it. Yeah, two Criterions that hopefully will introduce you to a whole new world of storytelling that you probably didn't even suspect was out there. Two Criterions for the price of two Criterions. Yeah. Which Uh, is a lot. All right, so going to television, we are going to talk about the BBC uh, show meant to... Uh, or I guess HBO show, uh, meant to give Stephen Merchant a chance to be the head guy. Hey, no Ricky Gervais in sight. Hello, ladies. Speaking of people who should be locked up and tortured for several years, the the character that Stephen Merchant plays in this movie. The thing is about the British (laughs) and their comedy sitcoms is they love to have sitcoms about awful, awful people. And sometimes it really works, like in Faulty Towers, for instance, where you're like, oh, you love to hate that guy. It's a really good show. And sometimes you really think that this guy shouldn't, their main character should never be allowed to talk to another human being for the rest of their life. Yeah. Such as Stephen Merchant's character of Stuart Pritchard here in this is an Englishman living in LA who's trying, who's there to find the woman of his dreams, but, um, is an asshole, but he's a complete asshole. It's like, you know, I don't feel sorry for this guy. Not he's a fucking even a little prick. bit. See, and his friends are pricks and, there's nothing to like here. Even, like, I didn't watch enough of the British office to know if they did this with David Brent. But in the American office with Stephen, Steve Carell, two things are different. Okay? The first is that you take this this real, like, asshole with no self-awareness and you set him amongst people who are basically good people. You know, so it creates a juxtaposition and you end up siding for those people. But then they also give him moments to show, like, he does. he is a human, he does care, he's just, you know, whatever. This, they take that unlikable character, give him no redeeming qualities whatsoever, and set him in L.A. amongst, like... No a, other redeeming quality people. A bunch of people in the entertainment business who are drawn so ridiculously broadly to be douchebags that I'm like, what am I supposed to feel about anybody? And I'm not surprised this got canceled after one season and a movie, believe it or not. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I, didn't even, I didn't even... I will tell you this flat out. I didn't even try to sit through the movie. I watched five episodes, and I was like... Fuck this show so hard. Yeah, I only got four episodes in and went, okay, I hate this really bad. I thought thought at first, I'm like, okay, these sort of shows, they if they're good, they'll start to grow on you after a while. And it's got a lot of good guest stars along the way, like Nicole Kidman and Lucy Punch. But this is not one of those. This was canceled for good reason. I think Stephen Merchant can be very funny. He's certainly a very funny writer, and he's a much better funny sidekick to Richard, uh, Ricky Gervais than he is well, as a lead character all on his I own. I think he could be a leading guy. Just think, why do you have to do the exact same shtick as Ricky Gervais? Yeah. Why can't you be a different type of character? Well, partially because he was writing a lot of that shtick in the uh, first that's place. a good point. That's a I mean, good point. He, like, he was one of the main writers and directors of The Office and Extras and The Ricky Gervais Show. So, there you go. <laughs> so, he's really just, like, waiting around in his own kiddie pool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, this is, like, him doing what he's always done, only without Ricky and with him as the main character, and it just doesn't work as well. No. It's something about Ricky and balances him out. Yeah, I think the two of them work together. Like, I love the Ricky Gervais show where they just make fun of Carl Pilkington. That's one of my favorite things that those two guys do. Well, our uh, my pick of the week this week is like something I was hoping to do a whole separate sequence on. I 
talked to a couple friends about this because I'm like, come on, you've told me this is one of your favorite shows ever. Can you get and like, yeah, it's been way too long since I've seen it. I don't think I could really talk about it. It's like, fuck, I can't find anybody who's watched this anytime recently to talk about it with me. I have never seen a single episode and of this show. We're talking about The Wire, which the Wire. I, I had only ever seen the first episode. And I had seen it three times already where I'm like, okay, I'll watch the. Uh, everybody says it's great, I'll watch it. I watched the first episode and then really didn't feel motivated to keep watching it after that. Um, and it's funny because in this brand new uh, Blu-ray box set from HBO that has the one extra feature that's not from the previous DVD edition, which is a sort of round table of a huge amount of the cast and crew talking recently about their members of the show, even the cast is like, man, like, so I was all excited, get an HBO show. Uh, I saw the first episode and, and I called my agent. I said, go ahead and keep your eye open for other stuff for me. This shit is not going to last. Oh, wow. And the thing is, that's because nobody knew what the grand plan was at this point. I mean, nobody had made a show like The Wire. It's a huge... I mean, they keep calling it a cinematic novel, and it very much is. Each segment, each each uh, uh, season of the five seasons of the show is sp- specifically pointed at a different aspect of the city, Baltimore, in this question. And what in that aspect of it went wrong that has led to shit being as terrible as it is there and terrible in a lot of different cities, you know? I mean, we're following the cops on one side who are, do the name of the show, constantly trying to get, you know, a judge to give them the rights to set up a wire to, to tap various areas and then all the various drug dealers and their system. And it goes from, like, so many different aspects from, like, the interior of the, the higher up of the police force, the newspaper system the, and media system, the education system. As the show goes along, you, there's a point about maybe maybe around the third season that you suddenly click and go, oh, I see what they're doing. <laughs> this is all, all this stuff plays together into a much bigger picture of... The, a very eloquent and beautiful picture of what exactly is wrong, trying to make an argument. And I think that as in, in that sense, as art, when people say this is the greatest TV show ever made, I can see their point. Nobody else has ever made a show I've seen that really so thoroughly is about one argument and trying to piece it all together like that in mm-hmm. a very eloquent, beautiful and real way. Uh, it's not my favorite show because I am a guy who likes more ex- excitement. Yeah. <laughs> and this show is not always exciting. Uh, like, I still say for cop shows, I'll take The Shield over The Wire. I, oh, wow. I, I think it's a better show overall in terms of being fun and exciting to watch week to week. Just incredibly well written, but not as high-minded. Yeah. You know, this is extremely high-minded. See, show. I didn't even know that was the concept of the show. All I had ever known of this show was drug dealers and cops and Michael Kenneth Williams. Like, that's literally all I ever oh, knew yeah. about this Michael show. Michael Kenneth Williams plays Omar, who's, like, by far my favorite character on the show, and most people's favorite, I suspect, is the guy who lives in the ghetto, who uh, is basically the Punisher. Nice. <laughs> and crossed with Robin Hood. Because nice. uh, he goes around and robs exclusively from drug dealers. Oh, cool. And so all the drug dealers hate him, and every once in a while he'll help the police a little bit, but even they're like, this guy's a fucking loose, crazy loose cannon, which nice. he is. I want to see that. <laughs> I'm going to have to sit down, now that this set has come out, I'm going to have to sit down and watch this whole show, and then I'm going to go have, have to go back and finish The Shield. So. Even uh, like during the show, every time he shows up anywhere, he's always got this trench coat and a huge-ass shotgun, and everyone goes, oh shit, it's Omar, run! <laughs> <laughs> it's like happens over and over again, because everybody knows, fuck, he's coming to fuck somebody up. 
uh, when they do the the reunion thing on the extra features, that that director goes, uh, David Chase says, "Okay, I've always wanted to do this." Oh shit! Everybody runs Omar <laughs> right before it comes out. Like, okay, that's funny. Uh, you say David Chase? Uh, I want to say David Chase. Did I? Am I wrong there? David Chase was the guy who did The Sopranos. That's uh, what I mean. He may have done this one too. I did. I didn't. I don't know anything about. The show, really. I'm sorry, David Simon. David Simon. Okay, I was yeah. like, shit. If David Chase did this and the Sopranos, no, 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 my mistake. Okay, my mistake. I'm just, <laughs> I'm talking out of my arse. Art of your arse. Arse. I can't wait to see that. I'm going to probably borrow this from you so I can watch the whole show finally. So many great people on the show. Lance Reddick, who is astonishing, is sort of like the guy who's clearly the best cop among all these cops. Uh, mm-hmm. But even so, has a background where he did. We never really find out all the details. I don't think, but is he made some bad decisions mm-hmm. early on and now he's afraid it would haunt him if he tried to climb but so far up the ladder and he's also the guy who wants to actually who's a good who's good at doing what he does as being a you know higher end guy uh and uh, uh who by the way might be playing Martian Manhunter now they're saying which I thought was kind of exciting. Oh yeah I did hear that. Uh Frankie Faison uh, uh uh Michael Potts uh, it's just it, it, there's a huge amount of people that are that are on the show either as regulars or just occasional characters. I keep trying to see. There's oh uh, Michael B. Jordan as like oh, a 13 nice. year old got his start on the wire as a little, you know. Isn't Lance Reddick the guy? Kid. Isn't Lance Reddick the guy that was in both The Guest and John Wick last year? Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Right on. And Fringe and any number of other things, but yeah, I just. Um, this is one of those shows that if you have not seen it, you are not part of the cultural conversation. Damn it! And and it it's funny because it was not popular in its time. Like, it didn't do well, generally yeah. speaking, on HBO. Uh, but they got how they... Th- they knew the whole picture, like the suits did, and they were like, no, I think over time this is going to be important. And they sure let it enough, simmer. They let it sure simmer. enough, now it's considered to be just one of the greats, and it is worth your time to go back and check out is this whole blu-ray set is available now and it is my pick of the week nice yeah did we miss it i keep feeling like we missed i don't think we missed anything let me just yeah you 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 vamp i want to double check did we miss anything no we're good stop vamping (laughs) stop that immediately before Uh, i drive a stake into your heart all right so that brings us to the last title of the week which is of course our giveaway Sorry. Glasses were breaking. I got a little carried away yeah, with that. Yeah, amazing. Uh, it is The Loft, a 2014 film that's a remake of a 2008 Dutch-Belgian film, uh, both directed by the same guy, Eric Van Loy. And in this particular case, bringing in uh, some pretty good actors. Carl Urban, uh, Wentworth Miller, James Marsden, uh, Eric Stone Street, and Matthias Schonartz are all five friends who are complete pieces of shit. <laughs> rich, Entourage? Rich guys. No, not that kind. Okay. Really rich guys who are all like married and had decided to together spend the money on a super nice loft in the middle of the city so they had a place to bring mistresses and fuck around and do whatever they wanted to do. The only thing is, when the movie starts we find out that someone, a woman has been murdered in the main bed in there that they all come to discover and then the story is told with them all talking together and trying to figure out, well we only have, only five of us have these keys, the alarm was never set off, one of us did this and trying to figure out who did it. And it's a series of 
flashbacks and then double like, a you know, oh, wait, you didn't see this side of the flashback and who's telling the truth and who's not. That is a pretty interesting little whodunit that, if anything, suffers a bit from like if you're one of those people who cannot watch a movie where everybody is a piece of shit, then this is not going to be your movie either. <laughs> but I felt it was very well constructed with the all the you know, the the good actors and the level of deceit that was going on as it kept going. You know, I mean, there's multiple twists in this as it goes along. It's like, holy shit, man. Like, everybody has something to hide here that led into the bigger picture of it. I actually found this pretty fascinating film. I I was surprised it got pretty bad reviews overall. The original is considered to be a minor classic, and I, I, which I've never seen, but... I had a great time with this. I had really nothing bad to say about it other than Rona Mitra is not aging all that well, hmm. um, which I could have told you because she's always looked like Rob Lowe. It sounds like an Agatha Christie play directed by Tucker Max. Right. It, it kind of like. is like that, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, you're not supposed to like these people, mind yeah. you. That is definitely not the goal. And it's one of those like about you know showing that these are bad people and they deserve whatever happens to them type Ooh. of thing as it goes along. But... It's very stylish. It's very erotic. There's some incredibly sexy woman in it taking off their clothes and having sex. It's it's uh, well worth your time, and it is what we are giving away this week. And what do you have to do to win it, Brian Salisbury? Well, I'll tell you, Chris. Thanks for asking. Make sure to follow us at one of us net on Twitter, and then I want you to tweet at us with the answer to the following hypothetical: If you were staging your own Agatha Christie style type music musical yes. murder mystery, I like it, Brian. Go with that <laughs> murder mystery. Uh, one what, little, two little, ten little Indians. <laughs> one, two, three, four little Indians. That's the musical. Um, so you so you're staging an Agatha Christie type murder mystery. Where are the people? Uh, kind of bound together where they have to solve the mystery. Like in this, they're in a loft, and in a lot of places, they're in like a country inn or whatever. Like in an Agatha Christie play, there's always the place where everyone is confined, and you and there's a death, and you have to figure out who in this confined space did it. What is that confined space, and what is the gimmick yeah. of your Agatha Christie did they play? They do it with a lead pipe in the billiard room. That's clue. You're oh. just that's clue. I'm kind of on a clue kick today. You are on a clue kick today. I'm sorry. Hashtag that loft giveaway. We'll pick our favorite. That person will win a copy of this. On Blu-ray. Aren't you lucky? Aren't you lucky? Yes, you are. And that brings us to the end. That's the end. Of another digital noise. We hope you have enjoyed your stay at Hotel Digital Noise. It is now time for your checkout. You can press stop on the player. But you can never leave. Sometimes recording with you feels like being at Hotel California. I don't know if you should take that as a compliment or an insult. I think of myself as a little Alistair Crowley-ish at points. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Make sure to follow us on Twitter, uh, at one of us, Nat, at DigiNoiseCast, or individually, I'm at Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. You can also like this uh, website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. Definitely consider becoming a subscriber. We really appreciate that. Use all of our Amazon links. We're going to be posting them. Yes, I know they've been behind lately. That is totally my fault. Um, But when they are on there, click on them like crazy. No matter what you buy on Amazon, as long as you got there via our link, your purchase benefits the site, and we really appreciate that. We do. I feel a a pleasant disturbance in the force every time someone clicks on them. That's just an erection. So for now, I'm I go- get an erection every time one of you clicks on one. I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. 
So I'm going to end the show the way I always do, reminding you, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Oh, thanks, guy out there. I just got a hard on. Hmm. 